from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 59 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and is historian Michael Bowling. I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Bonjour, Craig. Hey, bonjour, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you say it so much better. I guess you should have said Michelle. I don't know. But, um, and and of course we're 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 Trish Tish. That's French. Of course uh, we're we're speaking that way because you were in a whole different kingdom the last few days, weren't you? I absolutely was. <laughs> yeah, I was given the uh, amazing opportunity by Disney uh, to go on a fully paid for trip to Disneyland Paris and. Uh, well, I guess I should say that with an asterisk. It wasn't completely fully paid. It was fully paid for the flight, the hotel, and uh, a couple meals, plus the park access and the Disney Fan Days event, which is the whole reason I was out, I was out there. But uh, I, the one quick service meal I ate in the park uh, when I actually stopped to, to eat something, because uh, looking back on it, I only ate, I think, three meals. Four meals the entire time I was there, uh, including breakfast, lunch, and dinner, just because I was so busy. The one quick service meal in the parks I ate myself, I did pay for that. So I feel I feel strongly that I could review that one because I know I know that the twenty two dollars that came out of my pocket for a, a piece of Parisian pizza and a beer and a bottle of water. But yeah, it was. Um, it was a great trip that Disney sent me on, and it was it was definitely a whirlwind, and I cannot wait to share it with everyone very soon on our show. Mm-hmm. That's right. If all goes as planned, Craig is going to share a couple of his trips with us uh, next week. <laughs> yeah. And- the, 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 obviously, the Disneyland Paris trip being slightly more interesting than the other one, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But, but I know you'll talk about your connections with Walt on both about both those trips absolutely so. yeah mm-hmm. I, I actually i had a, a i had a a, col- a disney culinary moment this past week as well oh, yeah? there's there's a place uh in sacramento called the napoli culinary academy and cafe napoli and they what it is it's a culinary institute so they, of course, train students in the restaurant and hospitality industry. And one of the things they do is that they also have cooking classes that uh, that their chefs um, lead and that their students sort of help facilitate. And some of them are, like Carol and I took one a while back, and it was just, it was an Italian cooking class and these are a lot of fun and i you know we we and then that one we learned like how to make chicken marcella and minestrone soup and cannolis but they have a series of disney themed 
cooking classes. And I went to one with a friend because um, Carol and I were supposed to go. And Carol wasn't that interested in the menu. And she was only going to go because I wanted to go. And then because she's still recovering from surgery, she couldn't go. And we had canceled this like three times. So she didn't want to cancel it again. So I went with a friend of ours. And it was a Mary Poppins themed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, uh, cooking class. So, and what they do is you go in and, you know, you get a, a free beverage of your choice, either alcoholic or soft. And then you, they start watching, you have a sort of a little social hour, kind of, or 30 minutes. And then they, they, they start playing Mary Poppins. And then they, they pause it for a bit. And then they, then the, the, the demonstration chef, and she's an executive, she'd been a student there. She was an executive chef at, uh, at, um, at another restaurant in Sacramento. I found out in talking with her afterwards, she had worked at the Magic Kingdom in uh and at disney hollywood studios she was or it was disney mgm studios at the time she was a friend of mickey friend of minnie she was a friend of chip and dale she was uh, a friend of chip in uh the beauty and the beast show over at the disney mgm studios she and she was a friend of a number of other characters and she was in some of the parades and she showed me photos that's that she cool. still had of herself on her phone. I thought, wow, talk about a small world. Yeah, what are the but, odds? Really? But we <laughs> learned how to make um, London Fog Soup, which is basically like a, a split pea and ham soup. And so what they do first is they demonstrate it for you, how to make it, and they talk you sort of through it. And, and, and it, it's very much like in Ratatouille. Anyone can cook how you're the chef, you cook it to your taste, and anybody that tries to tell you how to cook, you, you tell them to get out of your kitchen. <laughs> and, um, and, then, and, then, uh, and, then, and then I'll have someone come up and help. And they had me taste a little because they asked, is anybody British or British background who's familiar with these dishes? And I raised my hand. So I became like the taster. You know, yeah. in, in this. And then it was supposed to be shepherd's pie, but it was actually cottage pie. But most uh, most Americans think of this as shepherd's pie. But it was made with ground beef and vegetables. And, you know, shepherd's pie, of it's course, lamb. is lamb without yeah. vegetables. And but I, I really like this. So we learned how to do that. And then we, uh, the dessert, it wasn't really a dessert. And this is something that doesn't go with uh with uh, uh, you know the cottage pie, but it, it was how to make Yorkshire pudding. Oh, and yeah. And which is what sort of attracted me to it all. And and then what they do is after you go through all that, then they break you up into groups, and then uh, groups of three, and different people, different groups make different parts of the meal, and then they add to it. They had that they usually then one of them. Uh, one of the the students will make a vegetable or something like that or a salad to go with it and then you sit down and then they finish the film and then they serve you what you've prepared Uh and uh and it was great fun and then and then one of the the pastry students came out and brought out these um napoleons that she had just made these things were enormous i mean two people could eat these and be full 
could eat one wow. and be full. And they were only $4 each. And, it, it, and the money goes to their scholarship fund. Anyway, we had so much fun. And they have a Little Mermaid-themed one where you learn seafood. They have an Aladdin-themed one where you learn Moroccan food. Anyway, they have... Uh, they they have all kinds of different ones. There's a Lilo and Stitch one. There's um, there's there's all these Disney themed ones. So yeah, that's um, nice. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun, and so I definitely want to do this again. And uh, and, and these things sell out within. 24 hours so uh, yeah. I don't know maybe if I sign up for another one if those of you who f- who live in the Sacramento area and you follow us on Connecting Walt if I sign up for one of these I will post it and maybe if you want to sign- first of all these are very reasonably priced these courses and and go on Groupon you can usually find a um, Groupon you know coupon for them mm-hmm. and then they give you a code after your first class so that you um, still get a, a, the same coupon price when you register for the class through them um, for any future classes and all the money goes um, t- again to their scholarship fund and um, but yeah maybe then maybe a few connecting with Walt listeners maybe we can um, you know go to one of these together and um, you know you know, do yeah. a Disney cooking class. It might be fun. So. Oh yeah, I'm jealous. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. It, it's just one of those things, and and it was terrific because I got to talk to a lot of Disney fans, some some young Disney fans, and um, and all that because it's this is definitely a family experience. Yeah, that's, to do this. That sounds so nice. Well, today, Craig and I are delighted to welcome Jeff Curdy to Connecting with Walt. Jeff is one of the leading authorities on the Walt Disney Company, its founder, and its history. Jeff is the author of more than 25 books, and he worked for Walt Disney Imagineering, uh, the theme park design division of the Walt Disney Company, and then for the corporate special projects department of Disney. And he did a whole lot even more than that. Uh, Since 1995, Jeff has enjoyed a career as an author, a writer, a consultant in the motion picture, theater, and theme park entertainment industries. More recently, he was the creative director, content consultant, and media producer for the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And he's a producer of that incredible documentary, The Boys, The Sherman Brothers Story. And he's the author of a new book, Travels with Walt Disney, A Photographic Voyage Around the World. Um, Listeners to both our old Disneyland show and Connecting with Walt know that I frequently reference Jeff's books. And most likely a majority of you out there have several of Jeff's books in your personal library. And we're delighted to have Jeff on the show. Jeff, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Well, hello, and thank you for asking me, and it's it's fun to be here. I'm glad you asked. Oh, we are, too. You know, uh, we were talking before the show, and, you know, my wife and I first met you and your family around 10 years ago when you were a featured speaker on the Disney Magic on a Panama Canal cruise. And I love the Disney. I love the Disney cruises, and I think we've done the Panama Canal now. I want to say three times. Oh, wow. So. Uh, I get asked on those long cruises mm-hmm. because they have so many sea days. Mm-hmm. And they need people who can get up and, and lie convincingly about Disney history. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, they like to fill in time for the Disney fans on the cruise with different presentations and, and information about 
Disney history. So that's been kind of my great joy is going on the Disney cruises. And then of course I get to meet people like you and, and I've made a lot of friends over the years just that I've met on cruises who live all over the world. It's, it's been pretty special. I've, I owe a lot to Walt. Yeah. Well, it was through you. I first learned about the Walt Disney family museum because you talked about what you were working on and you had this incredible concept art for it there. And you yeah. talked about a wonderful book you had done, uh, really a great introduction to the theater and and how yeah. it works and even how to attend the theater. It, it, it's a marvelous book, a very unique book. Um, which, that which book, are, uh, How Does the Show Go On? Mm-hmm. How Does the Show Go On? Um, had two editions back then, and I'm actually working on a new updated and revised edition with Tom Schumacher the producer and president of Disney Theatrical. We're doing a, an updated version that will include Frozen and Newsies and Aladdin and uh, all up to date 10 years later on. So I think that's going to come out, well, it's going to be within the next eight months or nine months, I think. Oh, We're just excellent. Sort of going into design right now. Oh, so, good. Well, yeah. I will get that. That was a really good one. Um, so. It is, now, it is really good, and it's sort of timeless, too. And it's really, it's interesting because it's really intended audiences to sort of introduce children to the theater. But I'm actually very surprised at how many adults have said, gee, I learned so much that I never knew before because they didn't come from a theater background or hadn't done theater in school or anything. So it really is just sort of a marvelous, real all-ages kind of book. I agree, absolutely. Now, now on this show, Craig and I have commented on how amazing it is that young Walt Disney, who grew up working through much of his youth, had almost no toys, had little exposure to the world beyond his communities, and yet grew up to have unlimited imagination and vision. And in your new book, Travels with Walt Disney, A Photographic Voyage Around the World, you chronicle how Walt was also a seasoned international traveler when many of his generation and background didn't venture far from their hometown or state. And it's so what, true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what do you believe was the spark within Walt that propelled his desire to discover the world and its people? Boy so much within Walt. I've studied Walt for decades and so much. I just think he had a ceaselessly curious and questing mind. And I keep thinking about, you know, those formative early years. I just got back from Marceline. I'd never been to Marceline, Missouri before. And I spent a day there on the 25th of May with the D23 group. Mm-hmm. And I just, I realized there's something that's particularly enchanting about a small Midwestern town. I understand why he never shook off his Midwestern roots, but I can also see just by the location of Marceline and the formative years when he lived there, the trains go by constantly. And when Marceline had a working Santa Fe station, there must've been something about seeing the trains come in and all the sort of the strangers coming from faraway places. And the idea that you could get on there and go, think about it at the time, too. You could go anywhere on the train, within the continental United States, at least. And you could then go forth from there. So I think this sort of yearn. I have this romantic vision of young Walt sitting, um, listening to the train whistles and and 
dreaming about what was at the other end of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's interesting. Yeah, and of course that was for our younger listeners. They may not know that steam locomotives were the primary mode of long distance transportation within the United States. You know, when Walt was a boy and a young man, and the, it, what I really enjoyed about your book, one of the things is you explain how, in many ways, sort of Walt was transported to his destiny on board trains. Uh, you know, like traveling to California in 1923, you know, uh, uh, creating Mickey Mouse on a train, you know, from New York to Los Angeles. And uh, there's something you you talked about that I, I had never hadn't read too much about. And that was the, the 1931 Gypsy Jaunt. And can you tell listeners a little about what that was? Because I found well, it entertaining. Absolutely. <laughs> and when, to, your, to your previous point, you know, the the... Context is everything in studying Walt. Mm-hmm. And when you consider that Walt, um, he remembered that when he was a boy in Marceline, for instance, there were eight automobiles. Um, the Wright brothers had only recently flown in Kitty Hawk. So the train was the way. The train was the modern transportation. The train was everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it set ideas uh, about progress in his mind and all sorts of ideas about being interested in technology. So the train, you can't underestimate the value of the train. And of course, being a Midwest boy, um, he was brought up with the legends of, you know, the great mighty Mississippi and Mark Twain and, and life on the Mississippi and Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. So in the early thirties, about 1931, he was having a lot of difficulty coping with success. And he basically had what he called a hell of a breakdown. Um, And the doctor simply advised him to get away from all things that had to do with work. The context, once again, let's remember, Walt got really famous, really successful, really fast. And this was a guy who really liked to work. So it all overwhelmed him. So he and Lily went away on what Lily dubbed the gypsy jaunt, as you had said earlier. Mm -hmm. And his intent was to take the train out to Kansas City and environs and go to uh, St. I think they wanted to wind up in St. Louis and take a riverboat down the Mississippi. He had this romantic Midwestern notion about the riverboat. Well, they got there and found that there was no more passenger riverboat on the Mississippi. It was all commerce and freight and the glamorous sort of movie idea of the, of the steamboat didn't exist anymore. So they continued their travels and wound up in Key West, Florida. And at that point decided that they were going to go to Cuba. So they really did take the gypsy jaunt somewhat literally. They let the road take them where they would. They they moved really without too much plan and spent their time resting, enjoying the scenery, relaxing along the way. Um, so it really was transformative for him. And I think like a lot of people, uh, young people who get into, you know, career paths and so on, you have to learn to balance your work with your leisure and to 
give yourself the time to rest. And I think that was really a, a pleasurable learning experience for, for Walt and for Lily. I think a lot of times I'd be really interested to, to really, I, I want to talk to the grandkids a little bit more about their granny and find out just more about her. I find more and more that she's in anecdotes about Walt, but we never really get a fully rounded portrait of how important Lily was. Mm-hmm. And I think Lily, I think Lily tempered Walt's genius and, and nailed it down to the ground. I keep thinking of Fred McMurray and Greer Garson in The Happiest Millionaire. Yes. And I sort of think Walt was a lot like Anthony Drexel Biddle thumping around and bellowing and having live alligators live in the house. And (laughs) then there was Lily, sort of the Greer Garson figure, saying, yes, Walt, dear, yes, patting his hand and making him sort of come back down to earth. Um, I think that relationship is really sort of richly felt when you read about and, and look at the, the, the travels that they did together, including that very important um, 1931 trip uh, across the country into Cuba. Yeah, I, I've gotten the impression she was very much a sounding board for Walt and gave him a lot of um, feedback to his ideas that, What's interesting is she she doesn't seem to have been terribly, I don't know how to put this, she doesn't seem to have been terribly invested in, interested in, or passionate about the things he was, but she understood them, and they un- understood how important they were to him, and thus, exactly as you said, could offer support, guidance, and a perspective that I think only comes from being outside of the passion mm-hmm. to a large degree. So I just, it's, it's such an interesting and very seldom discussed relationship. And I think it was, you know, ultimately quite mutually beneficial on many levels. And I think that in many ways, Lily is sort of an unsung hero in the, in that she's, she's often relegated to this sort of role as, as the wife and mother and I think she was much, much more than that. I agree. I think she would have to be to be married to Walt. <laughs> I don't know. Absolutely. I just always, yeah. So, but now you you mentioned that, um, you know, the you know the, there's the first time that Walt really saw the world, and you know, and of course that was during World War One. And I, I when I was reading, you know, and looking at the photos of, of what you had in your book of that time in Walt's life when he was volunteering the Red Cross and I, I thought of that uh, that old th- that song that was popular in World War One. Uh, how are you going to keep him down on the farm after they've down seen the Paris <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly. and, I, and I thought that applied to Walt because I thought Absolutely. You know, <laughs> the, the, the critical maturation the baptism by fire the going from the boy to the man, it's all so corny. Like so much of Walt's life story is so what we would call corny, but that's what you did. Um, a lot of Midwestern farm boys went off to war, went off to serve, went off to, you know, Walt went off to the red cross. The war had ended and he you know, sort of thought he had missed it all. But 
once again, he wound up having experiences and growth and a maturation. And I think it was either he or Roy who said that a boy went away and a man came back. Um, Not that anything was traumatizing that happened to him, but I think he learned how the world worked to a larger degree when he went away to join the Red Cross. And it, it really prepared him for a lot of things that he would encounter in his life, whether it was eccentric or difficult personalities or situations that you feel you've failed or that you're trapped. Um, and also the fearlessness I think one gets from travel. I think that the more you travel, the less you fear others, mm-hmm. the less that you have trepidation about the foreign, whether that's a different place, an exotic location. Those can be intimidating, very scary ideas. And I only speak from personal experience because I'm an idiot who never got his passport until age of 32. I never went anywhere because, to be honest, I'll be honest because it's just you and me, right? Um, (laughs) And a few of our closest friends. I was was afraid. I was Mm -hmm. afraid to travel. What if? What if this happens? What if that happens? I spent so much time what ifing that I missed a lot of great experiences I could have had in my 20s. So I think that Walt benefited on so many levels from his Red Cross experience. Things that resonated they do with Walt. There's that, there's that famous um, Jesuit motto about show me the boy and I'll show you the man, basically, mm-hmm. is, is what it says. And that describes Walt, I think, in so many ways, from his experiences in Marceline and his experience in, in the Red Cross and then in Kansas City. I just think so much happened that was informing and influential to him before he was even 20 years old and things that echoed and resonated and rippled through his entire lifetime. And really, once again, to all of our benefit in that sense. I agree. And and he made lifetime friends too out of that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was, that was another thing that was very interesting. Friends from, you know, people that he continued to be interested in and call on and people who came out and, you know, like Walt Pfeiffer, who worked at the studio for his whole life, had been a boyhood pal of Walt's. Walt would travel back and forth once again by train in the thirties and forties. And he would stop off and visit in Kansas city and, and uh, catch up with old friends that were lifetime friends. And a couple of other um important railroad trips that's his trip with ward kimball to the chicago railroad fair i think that was yet another turning point i think in in walt's life especially creatively because once again he once again he had gotten to a point where he was being advised medically to get the heck out of town Mm -hmm. you know he had gone through all of the crises of the war and he was busy as he often did with himself and with his work, he was busy sort of reinventing what Disney was. And his, his, his nurse, Hazel George, 
and his doctor basically said, time for vacation. And Hazel actually, I think, suggested the railroad fair. Well, he knew it was nothing that Lily would be interested in, and certainly the girls wouldn't be interested in it at their age. So he looked around the studio and saw Ward was a rail nut. And so (laughs) these two grown men went off to, today I would refer to the same activity that I would engage in as um, nerding out with one of my friends. Um, You know, I have friends that I will go and do Disney activities with or or, uh, go look at historic sites and stuff. And basically, Walton Ward went and nerded out at the railroad fair. The thing I think that was really critical about that was it did give him a lot of time to relax and to reflect and to enjoy something that he had such, such a passion for. And it re-stimulated his fascination with trains and I think led to a lot of his, um, then his work on his model railroading hobby. During that trip, also, he and Ward went to Greenfield Village, Henry Ford's Greenfield Village. And I think something about that place spoke to his heart. It came at the same time as they were talking about essentially, well, we would say today, maximizing revenue streams. (laughs) Of course, they didn't say that in those days, but that was when they were talking about doing the little park across the street from the studio and giving a studio tour and little picnic park kind of thing. And I think the trip to the railroad fair really solidified a lot of his ideas for what a Disney park might look like and feel like. So absolutely correct. The railroad fair trip was influential and important, I think, on on several levels. Um, I think it reconnected and sort of revitalized him uh, in a lot of important ways that once again informed and influenced what he did from that time on. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that we... I think a lot of his inspiration for what we see in Disneyland today came out of that trip. And, Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, an, another another trip that you talk about that this seemed like such a whirlwind trip to me was there in in your book Travels with Walt Disney: Photographic Voyage Around the World. It's that 1935 trip to Europe that Walt and Roy went on with um, Edna and Lillian. And I, I mean, oh my gosh, I mean, talk about, you know, this really was the the grand tour of Europe. And th- this was really a significant trip for both of them. I mean, it was, it was, it seemed like it was sort of a working trip for Roy but, and, and, and a PR trip for Walt in a lot of ways. I th- and, and I think also... Once again, one of the important takeaways from that 1935 trip, of course, they, this was this was part of the discovery of, of the travels with Walt Disney was finding out how much he traveled by ship, um, and that was that was pretty interesting stuff. And of course, D.D.A. Getz has covered this particular trip in his his book um, Disney's Grand Tour. Um, so the depth of detail of what went on during that European trip, the thing that fascinates me is how 
crazy people went for Walt Disney. Walt Disney as celebrity. Um, this is, I think, sort of the first big manifestation of the name Walt Disney having so much meaning for audiences all over the world. I mean, he was he was practically mobbed at public appearances when he went on this on this on this tour on this trip. Um, there was a his arrival in in London was uh, described in one of the papers as the craziest mass interview I've ever attended. Everybody wanted to talk to him. They wanted to know about him. He had this huge international sensations with Mickey Mouse and the Silly Symphonies. He was beginning at home to work on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I think this trip was so much about recognizing the international impact that his funny little cartoons Mm-hmm. we're having all around the world. Um, you know, he, he said to a reporter that he, he thought it was uh, surprising to think about what a, an international personage Mickey had become and that people in Paris knew Mickey and in London and Rome as much as they did in any town in the United States, they knew who Mickey was. I think this was... <laughs> revelatory to him and I think really made him realize culturally I think financially of course he probably looked at the releases and the income from foreign markets and all that stuff and went yeah okay yeah but I think it didn't really hit him until this trip about how the characters and culture of Disney really had begun to resonate worldwide mm-hmm. yeah and that what he created was meaningful to people in, around the world, not not just in the well, United I, States. And this is the great alchemy of Disney, isn't it? Even to, to, to this day. And I had this, once again, I had this discussion in Marceline again, which is the culture of Disney has emotional resonance for people that's so deep because everybody has personalized a Disney experience into their own life, Mm -hmm. which in turn makes people very protective and very proprietary about Disney, even if it's their little piece of the Disney culture or their little element that they're especially interested in. It's an enormous strength for the company. I always warn people, the company is one thing and the Disney culture is a different thing. They coexist and they, they cohabit. They need each other. But I discourage people from getting too hung up about, you know, watching the stock market or the box office grosses if that's not what their area of interest is. If they're interested in the culture of Disney, um, Disney is Disney forever and ever. Amen. I agree. And, you know, we've talked on the show before, and I know I've talked about it with, um, you know, Walt's grandchildren, how really Walt reshaped and redefined childhood for generations in that and and i think it's what you said disney is such an ingrained part of childhood for so many generations we can't imagine we don't know what childhood was like before him 
and and can't it's imagine what it would yeah yeah and and it's can you imagine i remember you go ahead no well i was and i was thinking when we think of the, the influences that modern technology can expose children to these days because you, you're, you're the parent of three young children so you you certainly are dealing with this is that what if we didn't have disney i mean disney now is almost the grounding of um childhood in a way it's an absolute cultural foundation i think in a lot of ways and i think a lot of us who become disney fans plug into it based on a childhood experience and I remember I always sort of relate to the fact that Disney offers doorways that are understandable and safe into larger ideas. And I, I use the for instance about how I learned about Abraham Lincoln because of great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And it made me want to understand better why he was so important that you would make this enormous reverent, respectful show about him. I learned about, I learned about Benjamin Disraeli because his encyclopedia entry was always after Walt Disney's in the encyclopedia. I'd read Walt, the the world book, and I'd read Britannica, and Benjamin Disraeli was always the next one, so I would keep going. Um, What's interesting to me is, you said, this redefining childhood, and, and I remember... I owe a great deal of my um, personal culture to my grandmother who spent an awful lot of time and attention with me when I was a kid, because I know this will absolutely amaze you and your listeners. I was one weird kid. Um, I didn't like, I liked watching cartoons. I liked reading comic books. I liked reading in general. I liked listening to music. I was not about sports. I was not about that kind of activity. I was really interested in history and cultural history, and I had a grandmother who helped me do all of that. I remember one day asking her, Grandma, did you love Mickey as much as I do when you were a little girl? And my grandmother absolutely shocked me by saying, when I was a little girl, there was no Mickey Mouse. My grandmother was born in 1911. Oh, wow. Mickey Mouse didn't come about until she was an adult. And that was shocking to me. And it led me even more to explore what the pre-Disney childhood was about through my grandmother. And she showed me, and she still had copies of storybooks that she had from when she was a child, but it's something that I learned and sort of echoed in learning about Walt Disney. She said, you know, it was a, a... a sharing of stories that came about in many different ways from sitting in the the parlor or the living room or the family room and listening to someone play the piano or play the violin or from going to, I mean, once again, it sounds archetypal and it sounds corny, but in the summer you would go to the park and listen to concerts and you would share books back and forth and going to the new Carnegie free libraries was a really big deal because a lot of towns didn't have civic libraries, county libraries. So the Carnegie library system, and I learned a lot about 
how the culture was communicated prior to Walt Disney sort of creating this venue for childhood, as you pointed out, um, creating once again, this sort of foundational storytelling culture where you share it from generation to generation and anymore it can be anything. There are parents now who are sharing the little mermaid or they're sharing Lilo and stitch with their young children, because that's the movie I saw when I was a little girl or that's the place I went. I went to Disneyland when I was a little boy and we're going to go there now. So it's this sharing generationally of those feelings and those experiences. And it goes all the way back to practically the foundation of Disney back in the 1930s, passing Mickey Mouse along to your kids was probably the first manifestation of that. Yes. Oh, definitely. And it's, it's interesting. First of all, I had the same kind of childhood you did. So when you're you're describing you're a weird kid, I thought, wait, that that's normal for me. But um, <laughs> but but I remember how I remember when I graduated from like reading comic books and things like that into like more you know big boy books or whatever you want to call it was because you know when Disney released the films every seven years when I saw Treasure Island Swiss Family Robinson and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea I told my parents I want to read the books that these are based on they were thrilled and that launched me on loving literature and seeing Johnny Tremaine and Western Ho the Wagons it got me like you it got me interested in reading about history and now I love history Well, I'm looking at a big stack of books right next to my desk here in my office. It's a big stack of scholastic and pocket books because kids today don't know the era of like the 50 cent paperback book at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. Remember those big turning stands of pocket books and paperback books? Every Disney movie that came out had some corresponding book release. And that's when I really started diving in and read By the Great Horn Spoon by Sid Fleischman because Bullwit Griffin was based on that. I read The Golden Evenings of Summer by Will Stanton because Charlie and the Angel was based on that. I have Blackbeard's Ghost by Ben Stahl. I've got Highland at the Top of the World and Dodie Smith's 101 Dalmatians. And, you know, I read all of them because they were plugged into Disney in a certain way. Then, of course, the other thing it taught me as I did that was I began to see the choices that filmmakers make when they adapt a piece of literature. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that I was like, you know, the sharpest tool in the shed by any means, but I started to see, oh, you know, this story, it's all the same characters, but the storyline is all different. So clearly they liked all of these really interesting characters, but didn't think the story would make a good movie. So, it, it, you know, once again, the whole Disney thing just opens doors, especially, I think, if you are, as most of the fans that I've met and Walt himself, if you're naturally curious, if you just like to know how things are done or why things are done. I think it's just, once again, it's in many ways, it's a self-perpetuating culture in that sense, because then you have people like you and people like me who learn a lot about this and our great joy is passing it on. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, the, the, great, the great fun of doing what I do, a lot of people get into collecting or they get into having a hobby 
and they, because it's about ownership. I get into this and got into this as a career because it's more interesting to share it. That's and it. I like that. I, to be able to get somebody excited and interested, and this is once again, it's like a lot of my younger friends, I have to remind myself that they don't know a lot of this stuff. So when I say you should read this book or you know what, here's a link to a YouTube video you should watch that's about some aspect of Disney culture or history. I just love seeing how flipped out they get about things that I kind of take for granted given my 30 plus years of professional nerding out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That to me is the great joy of, and I think that's to tell you the truth is the joy of any sort of, of subculture in this sense. I think that it's probably the same with people who are interested in the history of baseball or stamp collecting or anything like that. You, you find your like-minded subculture and that's what you do. You share it. Um, I find that the most satisfying thing about my whole Disney experience to a large degree. Well, and you do a great job at it. <laughs> so, Thank you. But um, now, uh, uh, speaking uh, uh, again, another another trip that Walt went on again when it was at a real uh-huh. critical emotional time for him. You know, the the uh, studio was in was on strike. Walt was not taking yeah. it well. Roy needed him needed to deal with it without Walt. And then the State Department comes along and says, "Hey." We we're dealing with South America. They and are they going to ally with, you know, Axis? Are they going to ally, you know, ally with us? And so they sent Walt Disney and the studio down there on a goodwill trip to South America. And again, not only did this benefit the relationship relationship between the United States and South American countries during World War II, but this again it was another pivotal moment for Walt and the Walt Disney Studio. Well, and what's interesting is that Walt's first reaction was absolutely not. They asked him to do it, and he said no, because they wanted him to go and wave from a car and shake hands and stuff. He said, "I don't do that. I'm not a I'm not a glad hander. I'm not that. I'm not that kind of guy." But then, when they worked it out that he could actually go down there and do some actual work, do some investigative and sort of generous communication and appropriation of cultural elements, his whole notion of not just going down there and being an American waving and being friendly, but seeking out cultural elements that would be of interest back home so that the relationship would be, once again, Americans would become proprietary about what Walt called the APC countries, the Argentine and Brazil and Chile, um, he could not only just go down there and say, hi, I'm a wonderful American that you all love. Stick with us Yanks. We're pretty good guys. Indeed, he turned around and brought a great deal of the Latin American and South American culture back to the United States and said, these are our neighbors. I mean, the whole notion of saludos amigos is hello, friends. He brought back music, he brought back art, he brought back storytelling 
that most American audiences had never seen and never would experience. And once again, I think that the handshake that worked both ways from that trip to South America is the big story of the big Walt story of the South America trip, the El Grupo trip. Now, if your listeners have not seen Ted Thomas's amazing documentary film, um, Walt and El Grupo, Mm -hmm. it is absolutely a must see because the richness and depth with which he covers both the detail and what so often I think is missed in a lot of documentaries is the why you'll see documentaries and they give you all sorts of, you know, sort of chronological and procedural information, but they don't really examine a lot of the why. And then, and the thing that Ted's documentary does so well is it examines the impact he had on people there, which you don't get that story a lot of the time from eyewitness accounts and from the places themselves. And then of course, J.B. Kaufman did a corresponding book about Walt's relationship with South America. Now we've all seen the beginning of Saludos Amigos. That's one of the things that I have in Travels with Walt that I think is kind of funny. You've got Walt boarding the plane and getting uh, on the Pan Am, I think it was, and getting ready to head out and his artists like Herb Ryman and Mary Blair are getting on the plane with him. And, um, what I found out in working on this book is they actually had forgotten to shoot any of that when they actually <laughs> left. So for the sake of Saludos Amigos, they shot the departure after they actually came back so that they would have the sort of home movie continuity at the beginning of it. So that's very famous from both of those, the book, the documentary, the trip itself is very well documented. The plane flight is part of Saludos Amigos. What I found most interesting was the part that never really gets talked about, which is coming home. And that part of the trip doesn't get talked about, but basically Walt and Lily and some of the group wound up in Chile at the end of that El Grupo tour. And... um, the way to get home from Chile. And I think another thing, if you watch Ted's film and you read the book, that whole group didn't stop for the whole time that they were down there on that trip. They went to parties and events and receptions and they worked. They worked on story development. They worked on artwork. They went places and documented with their brushes and pens, beautiful locations and people and picked up storytelling. Um, But Walt said at the end of it, I was so worn out by the time we got to the end of that trip in Chile, they found out that they could take a ship, a passenger ship home. So they left South America on the Grace Line Santa Clarita or Santa Clara, the the liner Santa Clara. And that was a 17 day voyage for them to get back to Los Angeles. And Walt found as he, he said later in his life, he found that an ocean voyage was really the only place that he ever could really relax. Now, I'm not sure that he didn't find in later years that Palm Springs was pretty darn relaxing, but he was still <laughs> close to work and he still brought work with him, 
when he went to Palm Springs. But think about it, in the sea voyage in those days, there was no way to get at him. He was gone. You would basically say, Walter's gone for 17 days. You might be able to send a wire, but there was like no, certainly no internet, no ship-to-shore radio that wasn't prohibitively difficult or expensive to deal with. So Walt could really and genuinely feel on an ocean voyage like he was getting away. He also said at a, at a certain point on an ocean voyage, he stopped paying attention to time, which I find um, it's, it's hard to do when I'm on a Disney cruise because I have presentations and signings and appointments and stuff. But, and of course, there's always activities and port calls and things like that. But he said at one point, you know, at home, I don't get up anywhere later than 630 in the morning. And he would find that on the ship, he could sleep in. I mean, we sort of all take for granted that maybe one or two days a week we can sleep in and not have the alarm clock go off and not have anywhere we have to be in the morning. Um, this was a great, this was a great, uh, this was a very different world for Walt to be able to sleep until 9.30 or 10 in the morning. And once again, it was because he was on a ship. I was really surprised at how many ocean voyages that he and Lily took, beginning with that Gypsy John. But they were initial early cruisers to Hawaii. The um, the Matson line had started a, a passenger cruise business. So um, they were really sort of innovators in the, <laughs> what do you want to call them, ships to nowhere, mm-hmm. where sort of the cruise is the, is the trip. But their nowhere happened to be Hawaii. And they started that in the late 1920s and built the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. So you would get on a Matson liner in Los Angeles or San Francisco and sail to Hawaii, and then you'd stay at their their hotel and and you know wiggle your toes in the sand and that sort of thing. So Walt and Lily started doing that in the 30s, and they went in uh, I think 1934, 35, 34 I think, and then they went with uh, Roy and Edna in 39, and then with the girls several times, three or four times when during when the girls were young. They went on these family ocean voyages to uh, to Hawaii. And then, of course, ocean liners were, to a large degree, the way you got to Europe right. back in the old days, too. So they were I've... on the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth and, and the uh, SS United States and they did a lot of liner travel to and from Europe during the course of Walt's lifetime. So lots of sailing that I hadn't really, the whole thing with travels with Walt Disney was it's looking at Walt's life through a different kind of prism is always really interesting to me. Right. And when we started to assemble this book, it was, I don't think I'd ever really sat down and connected all of his travels. You know, I was going to say, Yes, no, I was, no, I was going to say that, and and then I think it leads to what you were going to say is that when you like, you know, he did all those live action films after World War II, and he was the producer of those films, and it wasn't just that they slapped his name on it; he was the producer. And then you list them all, and that he traveled to locations for every single one of those. And I thought, yeah, you're right. This, I mean, he traveled the world just to produce his films. And well, it was the really- interesting thing too. Yeah. He he was he was actually a producer. Much mm-hmm. like with the El Grupo trip, he wasn't going down there and, and 
you know, waving and getting the press coverage and then, you know, walking on the set and making, making happy with the stars and then going away. He was on the set. Mm -hmm. He was looking through the script. He was working with the director. He was helping to determine shot setups. There's one photo in the book that's really charming where he's on location with, I think it's the moon spinners in Greece. And he's sitting next to the sound recordist and he's listening to the sound playback. Mm -hmm. It's just really interesting that he really was. And of course we all forget, where did he start? He started off making movies. He started off taking A.V. Cogger's camera home from Kansas City Film Ad and making trick films and figuring out what the camera could do. I think people tend to forget that Walt was a movie maker because we all, that was the other unusual thing about looking at the travel and the, the travel, his travels through photographs. There's a, a gorgeous photo of him on horseback on the location of Sword in the Rose. And it's strange looking if you don't remember context. What's strange looking is TV Walt is on horseback. And by that I mean he has on a business suit and a tie. <laughs> and yet here he is on this beautifully dressed horse. And then, of course, you stop and think, oh, yeah. Walt was a horseman. He was an equestrian. He played polo. Of course, that's not weird. But the, the identities of Walt that you get so sort of commingled across his lifetime, it's just a funny juxtaposition. And it makes you remember what a multifaceted fellow he was. Um, and I think, of course, too, the reputation that he gained after his passing, this whole idea of of Walt as sort of this wealthy, ultra-conservative uh, developer, greedy developer, wanting to, you know, tear down nature and build amusement parks, all of this sort of BS that led Diane to a large degree to make a whole museum about her dad. Um, we forget how amazingly nuanced Walt's life was and how the breadth of his experience, of his interests, and of his activities, we forget. Um, that's one of the things within the book, too, looking at his photos from early California, where he and Lily enjoyed the California dream of the 1920s and 30s, which was reaching out your kitchen window and picking an orange off your own orange tree. Mm -hmm. and if you went for an hour that way, you were at the Pacific Ocean, and if you went an hour that way, you were in the San Bernardino Mountains. And you see that California dream played out by Walton and Lily, where you see them at Lake Arrowhead or at Yosemite doing winter sports. They're skiing or skating. It really brings a richness to the perception of Really, who who was this guy? Um, and like I said, I didn't really start to examine it through that prism until I sat down to try to figure out how this book made sense. Mm -hmm. The book came about 
in this very sort of interesting way, I had been asked to do another Disney cruise. And my contact at the cruise line had said, let's do something new. Because I'll give them sort of a slate of presentations that I already have done. We were doing a transatlantic, and she said, let's do one that's about the port cities that we're going to. So I, um, I put together a presentation and founded Disney stories in every port, including Reykjavik, Iceland, which I was really proud of. Then we wound up not porting in Reykjavik because of the weather. So that was kind of sad. Um, but the other one I said, well, and, and really this is the genesis of this book. I said, let's look at making something nautical. Let's do something like Walt Disney on the high seas. And initially I thought, well, I know about, I think at that time I knew about the, the European trip on the Rex on the Italian liner Rex because the famous photos and the ones we used at the museum of Walt Mm -hmm. in the white coat and um, the, um, the thought I had was I can sort of pad this out with, you know, boat builders and sea scouts and some stories about the Columbia sailing ship. And, you know, we can make a sort of nautical fun thing. But then I started drilling down and it's like, oh my gosh. And that's where I found the Santa Clara line trip from El Grupo and all that stuff. And I put together this presentation, Walt Disney on the high seas. One of the passengers came up afterwards and said, I would love to be able to get that in a little book in the gift store. I think that would be so neat to have on board the Disney cruise lines, just a little, little paperback, easy to transport. So when I got home, I made a a PDF of my keynote presentation and I sent it off to my book editor and said, is there a book here or am I nuts? And she wrote back and said, yes, you're nuts, but there's a book here. Um, So, you know, she agreed (laughs) on both fronts. Um, But she said, I don't know if you're thinking big enough. Let's, let's look at making like a little travel journal because Walt went everywhere. Bingo. There's where we went. So I started trying to put together a narrative logic because i hate chronological stuff mm-hmm. you know doing it as sort of a log that went from point you know chronology point a in 19 you know 18 or whatever until his death in 1966 seemed about the most boring way in the world to put this together and you know once again if you want timelines and chronologies and data i used to have this argument with diane disney miller at the museum all the time i would say the museum is not a place for data museum is a place for experience that leads you to find out the data. It's a place for you to feel something so that you go study more of the facts and figures. Museum is a place where you can learn about why and then find out what and when later on. I had sort of the same approach to this book. I thought, what's going to be interesting ways to group these? So what I started with was visuals. I started looking at the photography. I started looking at the record keeping and Becky Klein, the director of the Disney archives gave me a wonderful document. When she found out about the book, she handed me a file folder one day in the archives and said, I've been putting this together for years and I never knew exactly why, but it basically was a chronology of Walt's travels based on studio records, 
date books, his daily calendar, tickets, press articles. She had just been accumulating this day-by-day information for ages. Well, that led me to go and look things up in the photo library and to look for images. And then as I started to look at the images, the choice was, what do these images reveal? Do they reveal an anecdote? Do they reveal a critical point in Walt's biography? Do they reveal a sort of connection to something that happened later? What are the nuances and the layers of the storytelling that can happen? That led me then to look at grouping things in a somewhat unconventional way by destinations and modes of transportation. So that's why it's sort of built the way it is with something about his early life, because I wanted to provide a context from which all his travels emanated. Of course, you can't do a book about travel in Walt Disney without a whole section on trains. Mm-hmm. So that became the second chapter. Of course, the train took him to California, and there were all sorts of little trips within California. There were trips as little as going from his home in Brentwood to Pasadena to be the Grand Marshal of the Rose Parade, but there were trips to film locations that were in California, specifically so dear to my heart. Then we got in the next chapter was really my presentation that I had done on um, the cruise line about Walt on the high seas. But of course, then you're going to go trains, you're going to go boats, you got to go in the sky. So, and of course, Walt's fascination with flying was almost the same and gets lots less coverage. But Lily talks in one interview about how they used to go stand at the airport and watch, just watch the planes take off and land because it was so fascinating to him. Then, of course, he bought three different company planes during the course of his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Then we looked at what you were talking about earlier. A lot of why he traveled was to go and see his movies being shot. So basically in the 50s and 60s, you know, that 15-year span from Treasure Island until he passed away, he would go all over the place. He went on location to... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he went to Jamaica for that. He went to uh, England for Treasure Island and Sword in the Rose and Rob Roy, the Highland Rogue. And he became something of an Anglophile when he was over there. Of course, the, the thing that I was missing in putting the book together, I didn't really have an ending. And then... I kept thinking about Walt as a a citizen of the world, about how that's such a dichotomy in a certain way to think of, you know, as I was saying before, this Walt after his death being perceived as sort of the grand granite carved, ugly American, you know, isolationist and rich and mean and all of those things that people started layering on him that weren't true. But I thought, you know what? This guy was really a citizen of the world. He really was a world traveler. And then the light bulb came on over my head and I went, oh my gosh. And then what he did after a lifetime of traveling all around the world, he made a destination so the world could come see him. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. He built Disneyland and the world came to him. There's the, and I went, there could be no better finale to a book about Walt's travels than to show some of the great photography. And once again, 
Michael Buckoff at the Disney Photo Library and Becky Klein and Archives had just uh, found and digitally um, scanned and restored a whole big set of VIP visitors to Disneyland photos. I think it was for two expos ago. And I remembered that and I sent a note over and said, can I, can I, do you have those? Can you send me a contact sheet? And they did. And so the book's sort of grand finale now is sort of the, the international appeal of Disneyland itself. And so we have, (coughs) sorry. And so we have, fantastic stuff i think a lot of it has probably either not been published or was published so long ago but you know the the uh the scope and variety of visitors domestic and international it's just fun to see walt with with you know the king of belgium and and the shah of iran and and it's just it's sort of fascinating to think that in his lifetime, he had become this world figure. You know, it was Walt with the King of Morocco, you know, mm-hmm. or with with Prime Minister Nehru of India. It's just he had become such a world-renowned figure that these people wanted to be photographed with him. So it created a wonderful. It created a wonderful sort of circle to the storytelling mm-hmm. of what the book was about I and, agree. Uh, it's just it's one of those things where sometimes you just sort of you're trying so hard to create some story logic to create some narrative structure and there it is right in front of your face the whole time mm-hmm. i sort of did one of those smack my head moments and went, well of course what's the <laughs> result of a lifetime of traveling the world make a place that the world can come see you yes exactly and one of a couple of the notes i had had on it was and you you were bringing up the photographs there are photographs in here i that are very rare or have never been publicly um published because a lot of these i've never seen and and i've seen a lot of photographs i mean and they're they're just so beautifully laid out and uh, i mean the book designer, Glendon Lee, did a phenomenal job of creating a rich texture visually between text, images, and fun little sort of artifacts. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a way of calling out pull quotes and things like that. So it gives it an enormous visual variety. We also had little napkin sketches done we commissioned yes. artists to create little line drawings and uh, the thought was do something that an artist or or a traveler would do while they're sitting and waiting to board a plane mm-hmm. or while they're sitting at a restaurant in a foreign city see so i imagined that walt place. would doodle something like that i i thought it was such a nice little addition to the book nice little touch <laughs> and that was and that was really our intent. Our intent was to create a sense that this is what creative people do when they travel. Mm-hmm. And it also just gives it another layer of texture in terms of the visuals. 
in terms of the photographs themselves, there are a great many here that either have not been published since their initial use for basically a newspaper or a Sunday magazine or a, a mass market magazine, um, or haven't been published before at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so once again, it was that access to the, to the Walt Disney archives photo library. And they're just so generously cooperative. And the nice thing is the people that I work with at Disney and at Disney publishing, they get excited about these books too. Um, and you can just, you can see it sort of raises the whole enterprise up when you get a group of people who are all passionate about it and, and excited by it. Um, it. It winds up really creating, once again, like the museum, I wanted to create something. <laughs> I talked, just talked about this the other day with some colleagues of mine. I said, our great benefit, I think, is that we all work on projects that we would buy ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we're not happy. Um, we're not happy with sort of second best. So it sort of makes us work extra hard to go. Would I plunk down thirty bucks for this? Yeah, I really would. Yeah. So we try to do that on all the projects that we've got going on. And, and I, I, a question that I know I had, and you, I think you addressed it, was one of the things I've learned about authors is size of book is very important, how they determine what size. And I just thought I really liked the size of this book because I like to read in bed and I li- or I like to read out in the garden or I like to tuck a book with me if I have to go out to an appointment because I then I can, as I'm waiting, I can sit and read it. And the trend to these big coffee table books is it's, they're lovely, but th- it's really hard to read one of those when you're trying to sit up in bed at night, you know, reading or well, take with true. you to an appointment. I, and yours is when you said it's like a travel journal. I thought exactly because this was just so easy for me to to pick up and and read anywhere. And that's what I think when you're doing a book and the books that I've been working on more recently, I've had a lot more direct involvement in making these decisions because you're absolutely right. Everything from the trim size to the binding to the weight and quality of the paper does something to your storytelling. So we're, we've, we've gotten very careful and I've gotten very involved in being a part of that decision-making process. I'm so absolutely lucky that my two editors that, that I work with most at Disney Editions are completely on board. They're people that I've worked with for a very long time and that, that we have a great mutual respect and making those decisions as part of a brain trust. And with the book designers too, uh, my next book coming out, I worked with a very long time friend who's an incredible designer. And all of us are nerds. All of us want to make books that we would be proud to go by and that we're proud to give to our family and our friends and say, this is what I do. So the way that you present the book exactly to your point is a way to be additive to the story you're telling. And that came back, as I said, right from the get go, when I sent the idea for a little 
Walt, Walt the Sailor book, which was, why don't you do a travel journal? Travel journal stuck in my head through the whole development process. And that was, that was where the idea of the little hotel bills and luggage tags being sort of stuck here and there, just to give a feel that it might somehow be an album that was carried along. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't make any, we don't make any uh, claim that that's what this is, but I wanted it to feel like that. Oh, it does. This, it's just a, a wonderful book. I know our listeners will will really enjoy this book. Uh, what do you hope people take away from Travels with Walt Disney, a photographic voyage around the world after they read it? Once again, I want, it's, all my all of my work involving the biographical and personal story of Walt Disney goes really back to what Diane wanted, which was Walt was not a plaster saint. He wasn't, you know, put on earth by God and, you know, rays of sunshine coming out of his forehead. But much like the reputation that followed him after his death, he was not a devil. He wasn't an awful man. He wasn't all of the things, you know, that sort of churn up all the time. Oh, he was a racist. He was a misogynist. Mm-hmm. He was an anti-Semite. Diane said the greatest compliment that we could give to him is to recognize that he was a man. He was a very human man. He happened to be an utter genius. But I would love people to take away a realization that there's nuance and complexity to Walt that they may not have thought of before. But that also what he was engaged in was a very human experience, traveling and participating, observing, on another layer, it's very interesting to see how these things sort of cross-pollinated and led to other things or fed into other ideas. If a reader takes away a sense of a greater richness of understanding who Walt Disney was and why things happened the way they did, then I've done an okay job with what I really wanted people to feel about him by looking at this book. I, uh, well, I think you were successful. <laughs> I think you, 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 you made, you hit the mark there. Now, how can our Thank listeners you. obtain a copy of Travels with Walt Disney? Well, luckily, Travels with Walt Disney is out in bookstores already. It's uh, been out for a couple months, doing pretty well. You can find it on Shop Disney. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um it's out there, and it's mm-hmm. fairly easy to find in, uh, I think, in, in uh, you know, sort of bo- bookstores and, and online is, is out where it is. So uh, if, you, Excellent. if you, you use your fancy new Googles and look that thing <laughs> up, you're going right. to find it. Yeah, and as we're heading into vacation season, this is a great book to read when you're on vacation or when you're thinking of your vacation or well you know what it's kind of a fun beach book too and yeah. i always i always in terms of the way this book is structured i said to somebody well it's kind of a bathtub book well what do you mean by that i mean yeah you can read it from beginning to end because there is something of a narrative arc to it mm-hmm. but you can also get into the bathtub and um, put on some music and open that book to any page 
and just start digging in. Exactly. So it has that same appeal as a beach book or a bathtub book. Now, you have a book coming out that I am really excited about. The minute I saw this pop up on Amazon, I pre-ordered it. And because this, they always have a tiny exhibit of the Disney Christmas cards at the Walt Disney Family Museum every year. That's one of my must-two things to do during the holidays. And you are coming out with From All of Us to All of You, the Disney Christmas card. So what can you share with us about this book? This this book is one that I have wanted to do for 20 years. I actually sold this book idea to Disney Publishing in 2008, and then it got shelved. And I'm kind of feeling lucky that it got shelved because it was heading in a direction that I didn't think was the book that I wanted. And that happens sometimes. You pitch a book and then it gets reformatted, it gets reduced in scope or scale, or as you said, you know, in the binding, the way that the book is presented, it changed so much that it wasn't the book I wanted. And I was actually a little relieved that it got shelved in about 2008-2009. About 18 months ago or so, not too long ago, I brought it back to my editors and showed them what had been done. And they took it to sales, and the sales group was all over it. Now, if any of your listeners have the Disney Maps book, the one that has mm-hmm. the sort of center stage open, and of course, we started that center stage open binding with the theater book back in right. 2007 mm-hmm. or whenever that was. But the Maps book was the same center open format. So this Disney uh, Christmas card, from all of us to all of you, the Disney Christmas card, um, is the same format and the same trim size as the Disney Maps book. And it is not only a sort of a chronological trip through the history of Disney over the decades, uh, accompanied by all of the Disney Studio, Disney Company Christmas cards from the first one in 1930 to the most recent one. We even had a Christmas card commissioned that Lorelei Bove, the artist, um, Disney artist, Disney animation artist did for us. She did a new prep and landing uh, Christmas card for us for the book. But within the book are a dozen removable, specially made cards that feature interesting and rare uh, Christmas themed art from Disney across the years. Um, There's a couple of, Uh, Never before published uh, Kevin Kidney illustrations from a video project that he did. Um, There's a wonderful sort of holiday arc of storytelling that not only shows us these beautiful, these Christmas cards are indescribable in the sense that the caliber of the art that was created for a lot of the Disney cards is breathtaking. They're amazing from the quality of the artwork to some of them, the paper mechanics are extraordinary. But it's also a group of artists that created the artwork from Tom Wood and Hank Porter in the very early days of the Disney cards up through and including Paul Wenzel, who's sort of an unsung hero artist of mine at the Disney studio, John Hench, Mary Blair, and even John Jensen, who in the 80s and 90s uh, took over in corporate graphics. So 
not only representations of all their art, but little sidebars and biographies of the artists who made them and material about the context of the times in which uh, the cards were created. So it gives us sort of a, once again, a more layered picture, um, not just flip a page, there's a card, flip a page, there's a card. There's a, a storytelling about this as an aspect of the Disney culture, I think that people will appreciate and enjoy as much as the art itself. Well, I hope you will come back on the show and talk about that book when uh, oh, when I'd it's released. To. And that's coming out in September of 2018. September, September 18th is the street date. So um, plenty of time to uh, pre-order and plenty of time to Get ready for Christmas because I think it's a terrific gift book. I think I was just thinking that <laughs> it's. I think it's going to be under a whole lot of Disney fan Christmas trees this year. I think so. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us and helping oh. us to connect with Walt through stories about his travels. Absolutely, my pleasure. You know, I. I think, as I've said so often, the three most influential men in my childhood were, sorry, Dad, Walt Disney and the Sherman Brothers. Mm -hmm. And uh, anything that I can do to keep Walt's name and work and spirit alive is something that's a tribute back to him and to his daughter, Diane, for all the work that she did in trying to preserve and perpetuate his work and his name. So it's absolutely my pleasure. Well, thank you. Well, we'll look forward to having you on the show again. Well, we are now at that time of the show where it is this day in Disney history. It is our big quiz where you can at home play along with us, test your knowledge against our contestants and see how do you fare? How is your knowledge of Disney history for the week of June 3rd this time? But remember, if you're playing along, you have to remember our rules for our home edition. No yahooing, no binging, no googling or anything else like that. You're, you're on your scout's honor here. So, of course, we do have our returning champion, Craig Williams, but also from our West Coast team we have one of my colleagues we have luella and luella i'm not even going to attempt to pronounce your last <laughs> name because i will it will all go terribly wrong so luella i'm gonna let you introduce yourself here hello yes it's uh luella loriola and tyler <laughs> messes it up all the time i know but everyone else does too so you're good you're in good company okay. if you mess up my name <laughs> and now, i will say I married into this. My parents didn't do this to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, listeners to our old Disneyland show will know Luella because she appeared quite frequently on it as one of our, our guests contributors. And if you watch the best and worst of Disneyland video series, which I highly encourage you to do because it is a fun series to watch, Luella is a regular on that yes, um, yes. show. So anyway, and so Luella, how did you come to the Diz? Because I think your story is very similar to mine. You were, you were a fan, you were a listener, and then you became part of the team. So tell us your journey. 
Yes, well, I stumbled upon the Diz when I was doing research for my first ever big trip to Walt Disney World, and it was one of the podcasts that I really appreciated show, uh, that shared honest opinions. And uh, I was making my big lifetime trip, and at the same time, I had booked a Diz um, cruise on the Bahamas, which just so happened to coincide with one of the podcast crews. And that's where my love of the Diz Unplugged started and where my knowledge of Disney just kind of increased tenfold. And um, it goes from there. Met the Disneyland team and they were having some meetups because I'm from Southern California. And that's how I found the Disneyland podcast and met some team members there. Used to go to the meetups. And I was really into Run Disney. And that's how I first started contributing, uh, you know, talking a little bit about the Run Disney side of the Disneyland podcast and kind of grew from there. And I've learned a lot about just Disney history, Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, and I uh, was really honored to be um, asked to join the team. So here I am today. And yeah. we are delighted to have you. And what's nice is uh, your perspective is that, you know, you're um, you you're married, you're a mom of three boys yes. uh, <laughs> of, of a variety of ages. So you know what it's like to have a teenager and at yes. the park and also yes. two youngsters. So, yes, that's true. I do have my 16-year-old who's in those little teenage years, and uh, but has been raised with loving uh, Disneyland. And then I have a nine-year-old special needs boy, so it's a different trip with him. And then I have my rowdy six-year-old who's a typical <laughs> six-year-old kid at Disneyland that puts the bubbles in everyone's faces. <laughs> yes, yes. So you, so you bring some really good perspectives. Um, Thank you. Also yes. to the show, so we appreciate it. Well, well, s- since you you say you know a lot about Disney history, Craig, you might be getting a run for your money here. I um, actually, I am not confident on this one, uh, <laughs> and that doesn't that doesn't happen really often. So, but I, I am I am afraid that this no, could no. finally be the time that I go down. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'll try my best. Well, as I mentioned, we are going to be looking at Disney events for the week of June 3rd. Now, for our our listeners at home and, and you know, new listeners who are playing along, uh, the rules are if, uh, if our contestants choose not to hear the multiple choice questions, they will, or multiple choice answers, they will receive uh, three points for a correct answer. If they do choose to hear the multiple choice options, uh, they will receive two points for a correct answer. If they ask to have one of the incorrect answers removed, they will then receive one point for a correct answer. However, if their opponent answers a question incorrectly, they will have the opportunity to steal that question and receive one point for the correct answer. So do we have any questions before I we think begin? I'm ready. I think I'm ready. Okay, okay Craig, are you ready? Oh, of course I'm ready. Okay, excellent. All right, now, Luella, since you are our guest on Connecting with Walt, we will give you the option. Would you like to receive the first question or pass it on to Craig? And there is strategy in, in this. I'm going to receive the first question. All right. So this first question is for actually this i've been saying june 3rd this whole time this is actually i didn't change my heading this is actually for june 10th 
So anyway, so um, because I looked at the first question and look at that. All right, so this is for June 10th. So hopefully it doesn't throw anybody off. Okay, so June 10th, Thelma Howard passed away on June 10th, 1994, shortly before her 80th birthday. What is her Disney connection? Oh. Thelma Howard. Sounds like she should be on the Andy Griffith show, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. You know, the name actually sounds familiar. And I do believe she's has a connection with Walt Disney, like a personal connection. So not necessarily something with the studios. Oh, my gosh. Um, let's go with the multiple choice. All right. So, A, was Thelma Howard one of the first ink and paint girls at the Disney Brothers studio and had worked with Lillian Bounds Disney and Edna Disney on the original Mickey Mouse cartoon shorts? Or B, she was Walt and Lillian's live-in housekeeper and cook for 30 years? C, she was one of three actresses hired to portray Aunt Jemima at Disneyland from 1955 to 1964. She was the hostess of the Aunt Jemima Pancake House in Frontierland and the annual pancake race on National Pancake Day. D. She was the first attraction hostess hired for Disneyland's Fantasyland in 1955. Okay, I really think it is more of a personal connection. I'm going to say um, B. I think she actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with B. I think she was their personal housekeeper. And very good. You are correct. It, okay. The answer is B. Thelma Howard, the Disney's live-in housekeeper and cook for 30 years. Beginning in 1951 at the age of 38, she passed away just shy of her 80th birthday. Her, she was nicknamed Fufu. And Walt often referred to her as the real-life Mary Poppins. As a housekeeper for the Disney family, she, she, she received a few shares of Disney stock as a Christmas gift from Walt, as well as for birthdays and special events. But she lived frugally throughout her life, not wanting to sell her stock out of loyalty to Walt and his family. Unbeknownst to herself, she was a multimillionaire at the time of her death. Wow. So what happens with that stock when she passes? Actually, when uh, we talked about it on Eat Like Walt episode with Marcy Smothers, uh -huh. um, Diane Disney uh, Miller, who had been making sure that that Thelma was cared for. That's in right. Her, That's right. I remember. When she retired, they actually set up a foundation okay. um, for in, in Thelma Howard's name for some of the causes that um, she cared about, causes for children and other things. So, yes. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Very good. Two points right off the bat. Excellent. Yay. There you go. Okay, Craig, to you, June 11th. These popular attractions officially debuted at Disney California Adventure on June 11th, 2010. Um, I will go with multiple choice. Is it A, World of Color and Silly Symphony Swings? B, The Little Mermaid, Ariel's Undersea Adventure and Goofy Sky School? C, World of Color and The Little Mermaid, Ariel's Undersea Adventure, 
Or D, Silly Symphony Swings and Goofy Sky School. You may have you may have covered this. Yeah. Um, well, I I could be completely wrong. I thought Goofy Sky School was there before, so I'm and I could be wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and eliminate those two. But I probably um, shouldn't have just announced that in case I decide to ask for one to go away. <laughs> uh, so that doesn't. That didn't do me any favors. Um, yeah, my the big thing is I don't remember when I don't remember when Little Mermaid opened up because I, I know when it opened up here it was it had to be around it had to be around two thousand. I was I started with the Diz at that point. It was two thousand twelve, and I know they didn't open up like right in line with each other, but. Two years also seems like a big gap. Um, I'll, I will go with, I, oh man. Um, do you want me to run through these again? Yeah, you can run through the two that didn't include Goofy Sky Skull. Uh, well, right, that actually, would... the only other one. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there's two. There's World of Color and Silly Symphony Swings. Okay. Or World of Color and The Little Mermaid Ariel's Undersea Adventure. The other two involved Goofy Sky School. I'm, I'm going to say A, the one with the swings. I don't remember seeing that in the back when it there was like the big orange and all that crap there mm-hmm. before it was okay. redone. Okay. Final answer. Yeah, final answer. You're absolutely correct. The oh. World of Color debuted. It was a spectacular display of water and special effects. It features more than 1,000 jets of water, which form incredible shapes and time to music, allowing Disney characters to come to life on a shimmering veil of mist. Also officially debuting, uh, Silly Symphony Swings, a wave swinger attraction in Paradise Pier. This is themed to uh, Walt Disney's The Band Concert. Features conductor Mickey Mouse conducting the attraction from high atop. Although technically the band concert is not a part of the Silly Symphony's film series, the name has been applied to the attraction due to its symphony storyline. So we are already at a tie, two to two. Very good. Okay. Luella, back to you. Okay. Disney's animated feature film Mulan premiered in this city on June 12th, 1998. Ooh, premiered. Okay. I'm going to have to say, ask for multiple choice. All right. Is it A, New York City, B, Los Angeles, C, Singapore, or D, Shanghai? Hmm. Well, June 12, 1998. I'm not going to say Shanghai because I don't think it would have premiered there just yet. And Singapore, I'm, I'm going back and forth between L.A. and Singapore. You know, I'm going to take a chance and say uh, Singapore. I'm going to go see Singapore with my final answer. All right. You are correct. Woohoo! 
Answer is C. Disney's animated feature Mulan premieres in Singapore based on the Chinese legend of Hua Mulan. I'm sure I got her first name in <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Mulan is the first of what will be three features produced primarily at the Disney Animation Studio at Disney MGM Studios. The film will be released in the United States seven days later. So Yay. very good. I remember seeing them working on that when we were at the Disney and Jim Studios. So. Nice. Okay. I do love that movie. Do love I that do movie. too. Not the sequel. Which, <laughs> they, which they showed us and we were being driven, I think, to the Great Wall of China. Oh, did <laughs> Oh, wonderful. It was horrible. <laughs> I think I fell asleep. Um, all right. Okay. On a, a, so excellent. So four points. Okay, four to two so far. Okay, Craig, over to you. This event provides some unexpected excitement to the star-studded red carpet opening of the new Cars Land at Disney California Adventure on June 13th, 2012. Oh, um... I... I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this because I know people who were at the red carpet, but I'm not positive, so I want to hear multiple choice. Right. Was it A, the surprise early debut of the Mad Tea Party as part of the festivities? B, a 4.1 earthquake that shakes parts of Southern California? C, a demonstration by local service unions representing Disneyland Resort housekeeping employees currently in a contract dispute with Disney. D, a power failure shutting down sections of Disney California Adventure, but not affecting Cars Land. I believe, unless I was lied to, I believe there was an earthquake. And you believe correctly. A 4.1 earthquake in Yorba Linda that shakes parts of Southern California on this evening adds a little extra unexpected excitement to the red carpet opening of the new Cars Land. Some of the actors and singers behind the scenes of Cars and stars of the ABC Network and Disney Channel walk the red carpet for the premiere party for Cars Land at Disney California Adventure. A 2.4 magnitude aftershock is reported a few minutes after the main quake. The new area will open to the public Friday, June 15th. I can't so, believe I but of course, that one. Of course, Luella and I can tell you a 4.1. I mean, if if you if you drop a book on the floor, it's a 4.1 earthquake. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, <laughs> I can't remember the earthquakes because they just come and go. It's <laughs> yeah, just a I part mean, of life here. It's like <laughs> nothing. I mean, yeah. I remember being told for that one that they were told about it, but didn't really recognize it at the time. No. So I still haven't been and through it, one yet. So, oh uh, yeah. Well, and a 2.4, we have those every day. I mean, in California, it's yeah. just, you know, hey. it's not a big deal, but anyway, but if you're visiting from elsewhere, um, it is, yeah. we have been, we have been in Disneyland for major quakes. So huh. that's a little different. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Very good. It We're tied again. Okay. All right. Wow. I'm really yeah. impressed. You're both on your games here. Okay. All right. Luella, back to you for June 14th. Yes. 
Walt Disney leads a planning meeting at Wed Imagineering on June 14, 1965. The meeting allows Walt Disney to present his ideas about the Florida property to the board members and legal staff of Walt Disney Productions, lawyers and consultants from the state of Florida, and Disney's legal staff from New York City. What name is given to this project as part of this meeting? Uh, let's get a multiple choice. Okay. Is it A, the Florida Project, B, Project X, C, Disneyland 2.0, or D, Project Future? You know, I'm just, I, I'm really not quite sure, but all I keep hearing is Florida Project, so I'm going to say A, the Florida Project. Okay, final answer. Final answer. That is incorrect. Eek. Oh, okay. Oh, gosh, your first one, but you're still yeah. doing well here. Okay, <laughs> Craig, over to you. What name is given to the project as part of this meeting at Wet Imagineering on June 14, 1965? Was it the Project X, Disneyland 2.0, or Project Future? I honestly, I don't know this one. Um I, the only thing I could think of is that I don't feel like Walt would say the words Disneyland 2.0. That just doesn't, that doesn't feel like something from that generation. That feels like something you either made up or something that is more of our generation right now at this point. Um, so I'd maybe... I, maybe I'll go with Project X. I know that sounds weird, but that's what I would name something if I didn't quite know what it would be named yet. Okay, final answer? Yeah. It was Project X in the early stages when they were pr- when they were purchasing the land, but it planning meeting for Project Future takes place at mm-hmm. Wed Enterprises. Mm. So after the meeting, Walt staff will have a better idea of the project's scope and needs so they can begin researching and preparing the necessary legal groundwork. Huh? So, and yes, you're right. Walt would never have called it Disneyland <laughs> 2.0 because a theme park was not part of his vision. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. hey, I didn't even think about it from that aspect. Mm-hmm. Just that yeah. it sounded goofy. Yeah, although I think later on they did refer to the Magic Kingdom as Disneyland 2.0 as they started to build it. So, anyway, just unofficially amongst themselves. Well, it's still a tie score, and now, Craig, it's your turn. So you can pull ahead here. Right. On June 15th, 1944... The Disney Studio Labor Management Commission newsletter prints an article which states Ward Kimball's Hugajidi 8 is doing a well job of entertaining the boys in the hospitals. What is this in reference to? Um, Hugajidi 8. Is doing a well job of entertaining the boys in the hospitals. I will. Um, I have to go multiple choice. Okay, is it A, one of the Walt Disney Studio World War II short propaganda films animated and directed by Ward Kimball? 
B, Ward Kimball's musical group, which will eventually become the Firehouse Five Plus Two. C, a traveling art collection of well-known works of art revised by Ward, such as Mona Lisa with her hair up in curlers or Whistler's mother watching television. D, a jazz instrumental piece written by Ward Kimball. The musical piece would be featured in the film Hit Parade of 1951. I have a feeling on what it is, but I want to get rid of one just in case. All right. Let's get rid of D, a jazz instrumental piece written by Ward Kimball. Okay. Um... I I have my gut instinct is going towards uh going towards the Firehouse 5. And the only reason why I'm going there is because Firehouse 5 plus 2 and the Hugga GD8 those are very similar to each other, so I'm assuming that maybe one person just left at some point and that's how it went from 8 to five plus two and that's basically the only basis i'm giving for it because i i it could easily be the other two but i'm going with that mm-hmm. which i believe was a maybe um b b so, okay yep, disney studio labor management commission newsletter notes ward kimball's hug a gd8 is doing a swell job of entertaining the boys in the hospitals next trip will be to narconia tb ward where they'll try a new act complete with chalk talk skits and jam session this is in reference to kimball's musical group which will eventually turn into the firehouse five plus two very good you got one wow point for that. that's excellent so yeah. did, did they just lose a member is that i that I, I have no idea. <laughs> it sounds like it. But Ward was just so odd with everything, which he, you know, reveled in. Yeah. <laughs> so who knows? But um, anyway, so very good. Okay, it's five to four. Craig, you for the first time, you've pulled ahead here. But Luella, you have the last question. Okay, so okay. You, you could win it all here. Okay, yeah. so this is for June 16th. On June 16, 1961, Walt Disney purchased the film rights to this book series. Hmm. I'm. I feel like I know it, but let's go with uh, multiple choice. Is it A, the Tarzan series by Edgar Rice Burroughs? B, the Wizard of Oz series with the exception of the first book? C, Winnie the Pooh series by A.A. A. Milne, or D, the Mary Poppins series by P.L. Travers. Okay. I'm going to go with D, the Mary, Mary Poppins. Poppins series by P.L. Travers. Okay. Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. Okay. That is incorrect. Ah! <laughs> he had actually bought it like 20 years prior oh, to that's that. That's right. He, it was 20 years prior, but it took a while to make the movie. It did. It did. Okay. So, okay. Craig, here you go. All right. So, Craig, on June 16th, 1961, which uh, book series did Walt Disney purchase the film rights for? Was it the Tarzan series, the Wizard of Oz series, except for the first book, or the Winnie the Pooh series? Um, I might be wrong, but kind of based on that same logic... Uh, I know there was different circumstances, but 
I know, I mean, I maybe they didn't have the rights to Wizard of Oz, but I, re, I remember the Return to Oz movie, and I feel like they would have needed some rights to do that. Um, whereas I believe by the time they got around to making Tarzan, it they didn't need the rights anymore at that point because it would have been public domain. But that could have been the same for Wizard of Oz, but... And I feel, I mean, I guess it could be Winnie the Pooh. They turned that into it too, but um, I, my gut instinct was Wizard of Oz. So I, I'm going to go with that. Okay, He had actually purchased those rights earlier as well. And, really? And they, and they, and they had, uh, they made Return to Oz before they lost the rights. But yeah, in fact, there is a Mickey Mouse Club um episode where Walt talks about the film he's going to make and the Mouseketeers act out a little musical number based on The Wizard of Oz, the next series. Yeah, so it's actually Walt Disney purchases the film rights to the Winnie the Pooh stories from Mrs. Daphne Milne, wife of the late author A.A. Milne. The first film, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, will appear in 1966 as a 26-minute short. So, well, Craig, congratulations. You squeaked by here five to four. Barely. So, it seems yeah. Very good. <laughs> you got rough there yeah. at the end. <laughs> well, Lo- Loella, you did a great job, though. Oh, I can't believe I got the Mary Poppins one wrong. I've seen the movie. I've, uh, I love Mary Poppins, but now that it's coming back to me, that's right. It took a while to make yeah, those movies. It did. It did. He was He persevered with those. But um, yeah, because he discovered the stories from um, his daughter Diane, yes. who had it at the side of her bed, and, and yes. uh, on her nightstand, and, and he she showed it to him, and he took a look at it. So yeah, so anyway, well, great. Well, Luella, we have to have you back next week. Yes, you did definitely. Such a great I need job. To, I need to redeem myself. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, there wasn't much to redeem here. You did a really good job. But we will look forward to having you next week on Connecting with Walt. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Well, you know, that was what what a great conversation we had with Jeff. I've been wanting to have him on the show for such a long time. And yeah. it was just fascinating to hear those stories about Walt uh, and a, a, a little more depth about um, Walt and how his travels were such an influence on him and how he was an influence on his travels. Oh, absolutely. Also. Yeah, no. Yeah. It's, uh, it, this happens a lot of times when you and I do uh, the interviews is that uh, we, you know, we both obviously have a chance to speak up and, and really jump in on it. I just get so fascinated with where the conversation goes. A lot of times I, I just have to sit back and listen to it as if I am a, a regular listener with it. And, you know, it, it happened when we did our uh, interview with Marcy on Eat Like mm-hmm. Walt. It happened with this. It's And mm-hmm. uh, even all the way back the last time uh, when we had uh, Bob Gurr on the show. It, again, oh, yeah. it's just... Uh, you know, I congratulate you I on finding the right people to bring on with this. So I, I have uh, 
purchased many of Jeff's books too, just like you have, and they're they're treasures in my library. So oh, to, yeah. to get to hear him discuss uh, this tonight was just it was just a real big treat. It was it was so fascinating too. It was almost like he had some of my notes because <laughs> I had a lot of questions about his creative process for the book yeah. because it, it was it's. As he said, it is so different from a traditional Disney history book, not just because of its theme where he's he's exploring Walt through the eyes of Walt's travel, uh, but uh, also just it's not linear. And I just found that really interesting. And, uh, and to hear his creative process as he walked through, you know, the inception of the book and and then, and how it developed and grew, and his whole process for um, putting it together, and and get, gathering the photographs and the design of the book, and everything. I I just was fascinated by all of that. So yeah. So I think uh, I think as we begin, as I mentioned, as we begin the travel season, whether you are traveling from your armchair or traveling on Disney Cruise Line, or traveling <laughs> around the world. This is definitely a book that I think you would enjoy taking with you and relaxing with, um, is, you know, Travels with Walt Disney, A Photographic Voyage Around the World. Absolutely. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Diz Unplugged? Like always, you can find me Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast on thursdays on the universal edition podcast wednesdays on the best and worst of walt disney world podcast uh either thursdays or fridays on the dis daily fix and then um well i will break uh the the barrier that we are always hiding behind but uh, we're actually getting ready to record uh the first renditions of the new Disneyland show tomorrow, and of course I'll be behind the technical aspects of it, and knowing how things happen in this company, I'll probably end up on it too, so um, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just throw a shameless plug out for that, that you yeah, might hear me chime in a time or two, uh, because it... Yeah, it, it probably will happen. But then, as always, uh, the fun places where you can connect with me. Not that our shows aren't fun, but where I'll actually interact right back in real time with you on Twitter and Instagram at Teleclaster. But, Michael, what about you? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, um, Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling with the Connecting with Walt banner, and Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Connecting with Walt on Twitter at Connecting Walt. And oh, I wanted to follow up on an announcement we made last week. Um, Craig, listeners are going to be a part of our show very soon. Yeah. And that we're going, you're going to be putting something out there about submitting questions for our spring Q&A episode. Exactly. Yeah, so um, that's it is going to be coming on Facebook, so uh, I thought it would already be out there, except um, I didn't even talk to Michael about this, but we've been recently <laughs> merging our uh, Disneyland Facebook page with our uh, with our, sorry, our Diz 
Disneyland Edition podcast Facebook page with the Disney World one. So while we're in that transition, it's kind of been a little bit uh, rocky on things that are posting besides the normal things, but it will be out there. Those questions, uh, they'll they'll be able to be asked very shortly. And uh, as, as we've done in the past two, of course, as always, it's just not not show topics once it's out there and open and available um just actual full-blown questions and and like we've mentioned please uh keep it all in that one facebook post not in separate emails uh not separate posts on the boards not not uh on twitter just on that one facebook uh message that does go out there excellent yeah, so keep an eye out for that. Yeah. So, And if you would like to listen to more shows on A History of Walt Disney, His Studio, His Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. Roy.